Would you turn please to Hebrews, the 13th chapter this evening, Hebrews 13, we'll continue on in a series that we've been doing for some weeks now, Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, let your conversation, that means your way of life, let it be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you let your way of life the way you live your entire manner of living and being let it be without covetousness everybody say that out loud without covetousness. Say it one more time. Without covetousness. Then he goes on to say, and be content with such things as you have. That's not the end of the sentence. For, why should you be content? For, he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's not saying, be content with junk, with wore out stuff and broken stuff, and be content with never having enough. Your contentment is not going to come. That's not reasonable. Did you hear me? Someone says, well, I only got these two crackers and a sardine, but uh, they give me contentment. (laughs) And I'm just happy with these Two sardines as I would be with a T-bone. No, you lying. You do not have the same level of satisfaction with that cracker and sardine as you would the finest meal available. Well, I'm just as happy, you know, with this 1970, you know, Pinto as I would be with a brand new Lexus. No, you're not. You can't sell us that. We don't believe it. That you are just as satisfied and enjoy driving one just as much as you do the other. No, you don't. But can you be content in the Pinto? Hmm? Yes, you can. See, Paul said, I've learned in whatever state I'm in. There, I've learned to be content. Actually, the word therewith is added by the translators. So he just said, whatever condition I'm in, I've learned how to be content. Didn't say he liked these conditions as good as the better conditions. But he's learned how to be content no matter what conditions. Why? What did he say? For. That's where the contentment comes from. Not from the cheap and the broke stuff. It comes for he has said. I will never leave you. Nor forsake you. That's where the contentment comes from. And really. There is not a car or a house. Or money enough. To make you content and satisfied. In your spirit. Without God. Now. We believe in prosperity. We preach it strong and we've caught a lot of flack over it. But we know 
That's the Bible. And uh, I think because of that, people take some scriptures like this or like what we've already looked at in 1 Timothy 6 where he said, uh, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil and different scriptures like that. And they see that God tells us not to be covetous. But in their ignorance, people mix it all up and decide that prosperity is covetousness. And it's not. I said it's not. You can be penniless and be full of greed. Right? You can have nothing. And all you do is daydream and scheme about how to get something and you're covetous. Well, by the same token, why couldn't you have a lot of stuff? And be without covetousness. Hmm? Why couldn't you have a lot of stuff. And a lot of money. And not worship any of it. And do what the Lord told you to do with it. At the drop of a hat. Huh? Be willing to give away anything. Do anything. That he said with it. Not stuck. Overly attached to any of it. Well, you can be and you're supposed to be. The Lord wants us to be blessed. He wants us to have plenty of nice stuff. But he doesn't want any of it to take his place. And he doesn't want it to be more important to us than it should be. And that's why we're talking about this. Our life, our entire life is to be what? Without covetousness. So what is covetousness? Literally, it means to desire. In fact, oftentimes in the King James, you see the word lust or lusts. And when you hear the word lust, people oftentimes just think of one area. But lust just simply means desire or strong desire. You can lust to sleep. You can lust for all kinds of things, the, the God's people, first generation of Israelites that he brought out of Egyptian bondage, lusted for cucumbers and watermelons and garlic. Didn't they? They lusted for it and a bunch of them got judged. God despises, he hates covetousness. It's a very serious thing to him and that's why in this passage he tells us Notice he didn't say try to eliminate it. Try to get it down to a manageable level. You know, everybody's got a little greediness in them, but let's really keep it down to a minimum. No, no, that's man's thinking. What did he say? Let your way of life, your whole life, your conversation, the King James says, let it be what? Not much. No, no. Without, then how much tolerance should we have for the ugly stuff? Zero. Tolerance for covetous, that's in yourself. Don't judge somebody else, in yourself. Say it out loud, I I will live live without without covetousness. I refuse refuse to covet covet at all. Remember what the scripture said with these are texts that we've seen from the Old Testament describing it in the Ten Commandments, actually the last commandment, Exodus 20, you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 20, 17 said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor maidservant, nor ox, nor donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Did he say try not to? And he said don't do it. Don't. What does it mean? Don't covet your neighbor's house. What does that mean? Well, we said the word means desire. It means to long for, to set the heart on. One said to sigh for. Get looking at their house. Going, I want that house. They don't even appreciate that house. They don't deserve that house. I ought to have that house. That's devilish. I said, that's devilish. People do that. I've heard people come try to explain it to me. Well, you know, I want so-and-so's wife. Well, that's his wife. Well, he don't appreciate her. He don't treat her right. I'll treat her right. Yeah. (laughs) Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's house, wife, husband, car, job, anything. And how many understand there's no reason why you would? Why would you? That's too weak. Why would you have to covet your neighbor's stuff when you got a God who can do anything with whom nothing's impossible? Can he give you complete satisfaction with your spouse? Or if you're not married, can he give you the perfect one? Can he give you a house that's better for you than anyone that they've got? Or anything else? Can he give you a job? Can he give you a position, a ministry, a life that is for you superior? Maybe theirs is the best for them, but God's got something that's the best for you. Tailor-made. And if you'll be willing and obedient, he'll cause you to enjoy the very best. Of the land. So you don't have to covet. No need to covet. When you understand. When you think right. When you have faith in God. You shall not covet. The living says you must not be envious. Of your neighbor's house. Etc. Etc. You must not burn with desire. One says in Deuteronomy 5. So we must not. In fact we are forbidden. We are commanded. Not To let ourselves want something or somebody that's somebody else's. Can we do this? That means that we do not allow ourselves to imagine, to fantasize. Did you hear me? What it would be like to have somebody else's life or be with somebody else's spouse or any of these things. It's evil. Somebody says, well, you know, thoughts cross your mind. It's natural. No, thoughts may come across your mind, but then what that means is now you're being tempted. We've talked about that. That's not a sin. But now what are you going to do with it? Are you going to resist it? Are you going to cast it down? Or are you going to daydream and yield to it and imagine, which is tantamount to feeding it? Or listen to somebody else talk about what they did in sin. It'll feed it. It'll make you want to do it. It'll make your flesh want to do it. So what's the solution? Cut it off. 
Don't think about it. Don't let yourself think about it. Don't let yourself talk about it. Don't listen to other people talk about it. Right? Don't watch it. How many know that modern secular television is full of lust, full of adultery, full of lying and stealing and fornication and perversion? Should we feed on that all night and all day? We shouldn't. If you do, it'll make you want it. Your flesh. So make it easy on yourself. I said make it easy on yourself and don't feed that. Feed your good desires. The Bible said we are to covet earnestly the best gifts. Feed your hunger for God. Feed your desire for the things of God and the will of God and the plan of God. And it'll get so strong. It'll get you out of bed in the middle of the night to pray about it. It'll get so strong. You'll sow your seed and you'll be willing to do anything. And God will get you where you should be. Can you say amen? Amen. Now last week we went into some detail talking about temptation. Do you remember that? Hmm? Five people. (laughs) Do you remember we talked about Jesus was tempted. Are we still talking about covetousness? Well when somebody is coveting something. What is going on? They're being tempted to want that or to try to get it. Well, Jesus was tempted, wasn't he? In fact, the Bible said he was tempted in all points, just like us. He, we went through, you know, the temptation is recorded in the gospel accounts, how he was tempted to turn the stones into bread. Well, there was a part of him that wanted to do that. He was hungry. But the Lord didn't direct him to do that. And he refused to be led by the enemy or led by his belly. Right? Let you and I refuse to be led by our desires, led by our appetites. Let's be spirit-led, God-led. Sit out loud, not desire-led, not need-led, not devil-led, spirit-led. And that's what, see, Jesus kept coming back to that, you know, cast yourself off the pinnacle. Well, the Lord didn't tell him to do that. So he's not going to do that and tempt God. He was tempted, but he did not yield, did not yield, did not yield to the temptation. He's our hero. Proven it could be done. He didn't do it with his powers as God, with divine powers. The Bible teaches that he emptied himself. Laid aside his mighty power and glory. He didn't operate in omniscience when he walked the earth. He didn't operate in omnipotence. He was God. He didn't cease being, but he laid aside his power and operated as a man. Anointed of the Holy Ghost. Everything he did, he did by the anointing. Now if that sounds strange to you, don't throw that away. Study it out. Find it out. And what I'm saying is, people say, well, yeah, but now, Brother Keith, that was Jesus. I mean, he didn't yield to the temptation, but that's Jesus. He did it with no unfair advantage over you or I. He did it using the same thing you have available to you. Proving it could be done as a man. Adam and Eve failed as human beings, as men. But Jesus came and did it as a man. 
That's why it's all legal. Are you listening now? So the devil couldn't say, oh, no, 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 you're God. You came, that's not fair. No, he laid aside his powers and abilities as God and completely became a man. And operated as a man. And did it as a man. Glory to God. Proven you can do it. And I can do it. Aren't you glad? Now, our record demonstrates that you didn't do it. (laughs) And I didn't do it. He never gave in to temptation. Not even one time. You have. I have. It's called sin. And all of sin and come short of the glory of God. So, what do you do? If you have given in, if you yielded to temptation, what now? Man, I have heard the right word tonight. Repent. Repent. I want to talk to you about that from the word. Everybody say repent. Repent is a word that we've heard a lot. We're very familiar with it. But friend, have you ever heard of this? The gift of repentance. I'm going to talk to you about this. People look at repent sometimes as a negative thing. Do you think I should repent? (laughs) You should give glory to God if he gives you repentance. Repentance is a gift. It's a privilege. It's the way for all things to be restored. It's the way for you to get back to the place where you were before you blew it. Oh, come on. We could have shouted even more about that one. I said, it is God has provided a way for us to get back to a place where we are as clean and holy as if we had never done that thing. It's called repentance. <laughs> But it's not what some people think it is. So let's go into the word song. To see exactly what this is. Now uh, go with me if you would to the book of Hebrews. Well, where, Are you still there? Great. We're going to go right over to Hebrews 12. We have already talked about and looked at two primary examples of covetousness. You remember them? Now, people that the Bible held up as examples of covetousness. One was Balaam. Remember we talked about Balaam? He is held up, in other words, as a don't be like this in the Bible. You got both. You got examples like Abraham, man of faith, father of faith, be like Abraham. And Balaam, don't be like Balaam. Covetous, who uh, loved the wages of unrighteousness and was willing to do anything to get that money. And he did. Sold out the people of God. I mean, just wicked. Also, we looked at Cain. Remember Cain? And we found out that covetousness is connected to envy. Envy. Boy, envy is a devilish thing. 
and how that he envied his brother and would not repent. How many remember he had an opportunity to repent? God came to him and he said, why are you so mad? When God asked you, why are you so mad? What should you do? You should immediately realize you do not have justifiable reason for being hot like you are. But no. He said, uh, if you do well, won't you be accepted? In other words, repent. Repent. I'll accept you. I'll bless you. I'll be just as happy with your offering as I was with your brothers if you'll get it right. But if you don't, sin's at the door. And it was. Murder. So we talked about that. We saw that. Here's another example of this. What not to do. What not to be like. Hebrews. Are you in 12? Hebrews 12. And 1. Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. You know anybody that's in that cloud? Anybody in family up there? Huh? They're not gone. They just moved. They didn't cease to exist. They just moved to a nicer place. And uh, one revelation that Brother Hagin, my father in the faith, said he got from the Lord during some of his experiences was that uh, people in heaven are aware of some spiritual things. And don't take this and try to build a doctrine off of it. But um, he said, you know, that they don't know or care if you get a new car or a new house or this or that. But if somebody gets saved, somebody gets back to God, somebody does the will of God, they are aware. Well, how many just understand in general, heaven is aware. God is that's his place, as his people are aware of our spiritual progress. And here tells us that there's a cloud of what? Witnesses. Witnesses. And that we are surrounded by them. The picture is painted of a coliseum with sporting events. And with people filling up the um, spectator seats and then watching And cheering on or booing or whatever they do. The ones that are down in the thick and in the action. I think sometimes we haven't realized it. You know, when you pass by cemeteries and you see all the tombstones. And you see it was 1800s and 1700s and and all. And you realize all the people that have come and gone off the planet. If you could back off. About the distance, you know, of the moon and see spiritually what's happening in the earth, you would see a mass exodus occurring. There are millions of people leaving this planet right now. And there are all kind of people coming too. There are arrivals. And there are departures. People talk about such and such place is haunted. Where so and so, you know, used to live there, you know, three centuries ago. No, they're not there. And we said, oh yeah, so and so saw them. No, they didn't see them. 
You lose your body, you're out of here. You go up or you go down. But you don't hang around and shake a chain and go, ooh. <laughs> so, well, I don't believe. What about these mediums? And, and what about these people that, you know, familiar spirits. There are people who hung around these people and spirits that these people yielded to when they were alive. They know more about them than their closest family member. Did you hear me? And they can imitate them and they can tell stuff and people are foolish trying to talk to the dead. Did you hear me? They're just opening the door wide open for the devil to deceive them. Did you understand you and I as believers are forbidden to do this? The Bible forbids us try to talk to the dead. Why would you want to? We got the living Spirit of God on the inside. He's the counselor. He knows everything about everything. If you could talk to Uncle Joe who's in heaven, you know what he'd tell him? Listen to the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Well, there is millions of people leaving the planet. And babies coming in, spirits coming in, being born. Well, Brother Keith, are they really human beings while they're in their mother's womb? Are you kidding me? You have to try to be ignorant. (laughs) To believe. (laughs) That it's just a glob of flesh. Until you can answer the question, when did the spirit Come into the body. Why would you be comfortable destroying it? No medical researchers got that answer. Somebody says, well, woman should have a right to, you know, her own body. This is not my mother's body. Is your body your mother's body? Never was. <laughs> well, <laughs> there is a mass arrivals of these little spirits from God entering and being born then and living their life. And there's this mass exodus of people leaving the planet. And you and I, for a brief moment, are in the thick of it down here. On the cutting edge. Are you listening? Running our race in the earth. And everybody that's already gone before. They're rooting us on. You may not be able to hear them. But they're rooting you on. And if you obey God. And you do what you should. I believe they're aware of some of these things. Excites them. They go. That's right. Get it. Do it. You ain't got long. Get after it boy. Do it. few more clicks and you'll be up here with me you better do it while you can that's why he goes on to say since we have this let us what lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us Is there stuff that will hold you back? Is there stuff that will entangle you and impede your progress? 
and prevent you and have you five years behind God's plan. Ten years behind God's plan. Twenty years behind God's plan for your life. What kind of stuff? Weights and sins. Sins, I think people understand. What's a weight? A weight is something you wouldn't necessarily call it sin, but it just weighs you down. It's stuff that is burdening you and sapping your resources. You're spending all your time and your thoughts and your money and your energy on this instead of running your race. It's a distraction. And there's plenty of them in this life, isn't there? It's okay to have fun. It's okay to have some things you enjoy. Phyllis talking about riding motorcycles. I like motorcycles. Always have. From the time I could talk, I went boom, boom. (laughs) But that's not my call. My call in life is not riding motorcycles. My call in life is proclaiming and expounding the good news. And I'm not going to get any reward for riding motorcycles. Hmm? Or fishing. Or boating. Somebody with me out, boy, it's not like I lost you. How quiet it got, man. You were like, no reward, Brother Kid. <laughs> what I'm saying is, keep that in mind and limit that stuff so that it doesn't become a weight to you that that's all you're doing with your time and your life. You know, when you've done something all day long, you better look up and think, you know, is this going to matter to the kingdom? Because I got a whole day here. It's all I've done. Well, you just need to follow your heart. Some playing and some fun's okay, but you can uh, waste time and let it be a waste. Sin that does beset a sin, uh, other translations bring up, it entangles you. It's an entanglement. Well, when you're entangled, you can't run. Would sin keep you from running your race? Would sin prevent you from finishing your race like you're supposed to? Yes, it would. So it's very serious, isn't it? Would sin cause you to not get reward like you're supposed to? Not have the place that you were supposed to have in the kingdom to come? Man, this gets more serious as you go, doesn't it? Well, then we need to get rid of it. Strip it off. And run this race that's set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. See, this tells you something else. What kind of race is this? It's a faith race. He didn't change subjects. Did Jesus run his race? Did he run it perfectly? Did he let anything weigh him down and hold him down? Or entangle him? Did he let sin tie him up and keep him back? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He ran a perfect race. Didn't he? I think Paul ran a good race. I'm sure he made some mistakes like all of us, but I think he ran a pretty good race. And near the end of it, he's speaking out of his spirit, out of that Philippian jail. And he says, I have run a good race. I fought a good fight. So he had to witness in his spirit. He didn't let stuff hold him up and trip him up. Jesus is the perfect example of running your race without the weights and the sins. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He ran his race. He did his job. He got it done. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's our example. Amen. Said for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. 
lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Now he's talking about resisting temptation, isn't he? Jesus, that's what he was doing out there in the garden. Why did Jesus sweat blood? This tells you. He was resisting sin. He was resisting temptation. What was he being tempted to do? It's right there in the text. What was his prayer? Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. So what is he wanting? Not to do this. So is it obvious he's being tempted not to go through with this? Was it really working on him? Beyond anything you and I have ever been tempted to do. Because none of us have resisted temptation to the point of blood coming out of our pores. He's my hero. What does that mean? That means that everybody you know would have yielded. Virtually. On that particular time right there. They would have just. I ain't doing this. No. <laughs> no. But what did he do? He kept coming back saying, nevertheless, not what I want, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, he resisted temptation to the point of blood. And he's telling us, don't you get wearied with this little temptation you're dealing with? You hadn't been pressed that far. And he did it not as God. He did it how? As a man, just like you or me would have to do it. He did it. Proven it could be done. Mm-mm-mm. Proven. What does that, what should that tell you and me? What should that just bolster up in your spirit? If he could do that, I can do this. I can resist this little thing. If he can resist that, that's what it should do for you. He said, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners, lest you uh, be wearied and faint in your minds. You've not resisted unto blood. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as to children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Did you see that he didn't change subjects? This flows together. Why? Well, we see him who resisted temptation to the point of sweating blood, did not yield. How about you and me? Well, we've yielded. There's been times. What needs to happen if you've yielded? You need to be corrected. And in some cases, you need to be what? Chastened, rebuked, scourged. What should be your response? Repentance. If you're wrong, if you've yielded, if you've sinned, there needs to be some change. You need to be corrected. And you need to receive correction. And you need to repent. Me, you, any of us. That's how to get back to your righteousness. To being clean. Back on the right track. 
Now keep reading here. He goes into this. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father uh, chastises not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, all me does everybody need some correction at some time in their life? Is there any such thing as a child who never needs any correction? No such thing. How about an adult? You're his child. Then you're illegitimate and not sons. King James uses a harsher word. That's not me. How about you? Well, if you say, no, that's not me, then what are you saying? I receive correction. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. So there's the word correct. Correct. And chastening has to do with just that. Correction. And we gave them reverence and respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. In other words, as they thought best. But he for our, I would say this, our certain prophet. You natural folks, it might have helped you. Might not sometimes. But when God corrects you, it always helps you. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. Is correction enjoyable? Sometimes you hear people say, oh, Brother Keith, you know, submission is easy for me. I enjoy correction. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. No, you don't. Submission is not easy for anybody. The reason people say that is because they don't know what it is. Submission by very nature of what it is, isn't easy. Now, if that sounds strange to you, we just got through teaching it a while back, right? But correction and being corrected isn't fun. Nobody enjoys being corrected. It's not joyous when it's going on. It's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, everybody say afterward. Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In fact, one of the main literal definitions of repentance is afterward. That's interesting, isn't it? Everybody say afterward. afterward. To per, and actually it's this way, to perceive afterwards. Did you hear that phrase? To perceive afterwards is one of the definitions of it. You know, that's one way you can tell about things. It's not the best way to to tell. But let's say you kind of wondered about doing something, and so you went ahead and did it. How do you feel afterwards? Be honest. That tells you a whole lot of things you ought to know about it. If you feel yucky, if you feel further away from God than before you did it, what's it time to do? Repent, right? Don't try to rationalize and reason it out in your mind. Well, so-and-so does it. Well, I just, I don't see what's wrong with it. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. If you feel worse after you did it, further from God 
colder, less spiritual, weaker faith, much less peace and joy, then it was not the thing to do. Is that too simple? If it was right, how about afterwards? For lack of a better phrase, you feel good about it, right? You feel like, yeah, that was right. You got confirmation. You got fruit. You got evidence, peace, joy. I call it the afterwards test. (laughs) Now, how many know you shouldn't give something the afterwards test repeatedly? (laughs) The last five times I did it, I felt terrible. (laughs) Well, then you slow. If you'd have been led, you wouldn't have done it the first time and felt lousy the first time. Right? We're talking about missing it. He said, no chastening for the present seems joyous. Afterward, somebody say afterward. Afterward, Afterward, his correction. Okay, you blew it, you messed up, you feel terrible, and he corrects you, shows you what's right and what's wrong, and you should what? Repent. Then, having received that correction and repenting, it's going to yield some peaceable fruit. You know your sin is forgiven, you're cleansed, you're washed, you've got, you're armed with uh, some knowledge and understanding how not to do it again. You're ready to go on and do the will of God and the rest of the plan of God. Peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? What kind of picture is this painting? Hands that what? What is that? And feeble knees. What is that? That's condemnation. Isn't it? That's somebody that's been sinning. That's somebody that's not been obeying. And they're weak. And they're feeble. And they're hanging. What does he say with that? Huh? Lift up them hands. Let those feeble knees be strengthened. Straight paths for your feet. Lest the lame be what? Turned out of the way. Now that's a phrase that portrays disqualification. I'm going to show it to you in other places. Can you see the significance of these things? You have ears to hear this. Are you willing to believe with me on this? There's some important utterance. What our society teaches today is to baby the weak hands. Hmm? Isn't it? Well, I'm trying, but I just can't. I've done everything I know to do, and I just can't help it. I can't help it. I can't shake it. I can't keep from doing it. See, what? that's an incorrect response to the correction. That's a, I can't help it. I'm not strong enough. It's too big. It's too hard. It's too strong. It's got too much of a hold on me. I can't. And we have 
an enabling society for this. We have people in every corner of society telling other people, well, you're a this, or you have that, and you're a this, and the bottom line is, you're not responsible. You can't help it. And it's a lie. I said it's a lie. You can't help it. Why would that be true? You can't help it. What does that mean? Does that mean the devil is controlling you and there's nothing you can do about it? What does it mean? And you have to watch, man, because I've had ministers try to argue with me. Yeah, but I have a chemical imbalance. Yeah, but you just don't understand. I have this. And as long as you defy the word with those words, you're going to stay in bondage. I've tried. You don't understand. It's genetic. My daddy was this way. His daddy was this way. I can't help it. It's a lie. I said it's a lie. And until you embrace that and believe that, then you'll be the one with the weak hands that hang down. And the feeble, you'll be a victim your whole life. I can't help it. This thing controls me. This thing runs me. And what you're doing is refusing to repent. And rejecting the correction. Saying, don't correct me. I can't help it. Then you're going to be feeble and defeated. And if you do it persistently enough, you will be turned out of the way. That's a serious thing. That's a disqualification. He said, instead of that, do what? Let it rather be healed. Can it be healed? Can God heal anything? I don't care if the last 40 guys in your lineage were bums. And you got nine chemical imbalances. It can be healed. It can be healed. God can heal it. But you got to be a believer. And you got to receive correction. And you got to take responsibility for your own mistakes. And admit that you sinned. And receive correction. Can you see how all this flows together? You see where it started? Jesus never yielded to the temptation. He didn't let anything slow him down or entangle him. But then he gets on down to us who have. So what do you need? You need correction. But you've got to be willing to receive it. Now keep reading. Follow, verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. He didn't just say you won't go to heaven. What did he say? The more carnal you are, the more dull and blind you will be. You won't see the things of God. You won't see the Lord working in your life or trying to work in your life. You'll be blind to it. The more you obey, 
the more committed you are, the more set apart to him, the more you see him. You see him every morning and every afternoon. You see him in everything that's going on. And then you will see him in glory too. Looking diligently. Now see all this goes together doesn't it? Looking diligently lest any man what? Fail of the grace of God. Now that refers back to that being turned out of the way. Fail of the grace of God lest a what? Any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. And then what else? It doesn't stop with you. And thereby what? Many be defiled. Now what? where did this bitterness come from? Refusing correction. And refusing to repent. Have you ever seen it? The Lord deals with somebody about something. They harden themselves. What goes right along with that? Bitterness. Bitterness. And the harder you get and the more you refuse to repent and refuse to receive correction, the more bitter you get and the more bitter you get, you want to spread it around. And feed that rebellion and bitterness to others. Now here's, you may think I've digressed, but look who's in the next verse. Hmm? Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as who? As Esau. I wanted you to see how all this builds up to him. Esau, who for one morsel of meat did what? Sold His birthright. Now we've been talking about people whose God is their belly. Is this covetousness? He wanted what he wanted right then. And didn't care what it cost him for his future. Covetousness. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward when he would have inherited the blessing, he was what? You could say he was turned out of the way. You could say he failed of the grace of God. He was rejected. Now let's back up. Why? How did he get here? He refused correction and he wouldn't repent. What's that next phrase? He was rejected for what? He found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Repentance is a gift. I said it's a gift, not to be despised. The opportunity to repent is a wonderful thing. Why do we have the ability to repent? Because Jesus went to the cross and bought it for us with the biggest price that's ever been paid. Repentance is a gift. Hold that thought. You're close by. Go to 2 Timothy. 
Second Timothy and the second chapter. Thank you, Lord. Some things don't make a shout when we hear them, but we need to know them. We need to know them and not play it and pretend because they are so serious. Does this bother you to hear about a man trying to repent and trying to get things changed and can't? I mean to see that I never get to that place. How about you? Second Timothy 2 and verse 24. The servant of the Lord must not strive. No strife. No fighting. It takes two, you know. Hmm? You say, well, I couldn't help it. Oh, yeah, yeah, you could. <laughs> Said out loud, the servant of the Lord. Must not, must not strive. strive. So stuff starts getting heated. That's when you need to make a change. Go a different direction. Get out. Postpone the finishing of the conversation till another time. He said, but be what? Gentle, Gentle unto all. Apt or able to teach. Patient, boy, you keep hearing the same thought, don't you? In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. See, people who are in a world of trouble, they are their biggest problem. Who's opposing them? Have you ever seen it? I mean, no hands raised, no testimonies, but people in this room could testify that before God helped you and got you straight. You were. You thought other people were, but it was you. You were your worst enemy, man. He said, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. And this is something we really want to get in the forefront of our mind. He didn't say in harshness. He didn't say in judging. What did he say? We can't tell them they're okay and they're doing right. They're not. But do you have to be hard about it? Do you have to be holier than thou about it? No. Meekness. Instructing those that oppose themselves. If what? If God. Peradventure. That means it's not automatic. Another way of saying it is what? Perhaps. Do some of your translations have that? If he will what? Give them. Repentance. Repentance. To the acknowledging of the truth. What happens next? And that they may recover themselves. Out of the snare or trap of the devil. Who are taken captive by him at his will. They can get themselves out. If they'll receive the instruction. And receive the correction. And repent. They can get themselves out. Oh can you see this? This I've prayed this over many a person right here. Right here this passage. Many a times I've said Lord I'm asking you. Would you give John, Susie, Bob, Tom. Would you give them repentance? 
to the acknowledging of the truth that they may recover their self out of the snare and trap of the devil. It's the right way to pray for people that are hurting their self, ruining their own life. Go with me to Genesis, please. And let's look at some detail about what we just read. Genesis 25. Esau is held up as a covetous one, a profane one. And one who did not repent, did not repent, did not repent, and then later was unable to. I know this is not often taught, but I just have it on my heart tonight. We need to talk about these things. And we need to look at them. You know, I'm, I'm not quite ready to go there. You just got through reading Jude, didn't you? Yes. Recently? Yes. Jude is full of this. And in case you didn't see it real clear, let's just go there right now. Jude. A lot of these things I've never taught like this before, so I have to move slowly. And uh, believe God, and y'all believe in God with me. And This doesn't just affect us, but you know that these materials go everywhere. Jude 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father... And preserved in Jesus Christ and called. How many like the sign of sanctified? Preserved? Called? Can God keep you? Yes, Yes, he can. Mercy to you. Peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Now, why would he say that? Except people were trying to change it. They were trying to change the gospel, water it down and alter it. He said, for there are certain men crept in unawares or secretly who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Listen to another translation. The New Living says, they say that God's forgiveness allows us to live immoral lives. Now, if you've read this, you understand the tone of this letter is stern, isn't it? Why? Because, And you can see why, because of this fourth verse. These men have come in and they are saying... That God's grace and forgiveness allows us to live immorally. Have you ever heard this statement? Well, sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness than it is permission. You ever heard that? That's a way to get in major trouble with God. And God's people. What does that mean? You ever heard, you know, people joke about this. Preachers joke about this. And I don't think it's funny. I don't think we should. People say, well, you know, I think I'm just going to do it and then get forgiveness later. That ain't funny. The further we go, I think you're going to see it's anything but funny. People say it and they think that way and they think, well, you know, I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. 
but I, I want to do it so bad and I'll just get forgiveness later. I'll just first John 1 9 it. Have you heard that kind of talk? Yeah, I know it. I know it. But I'll just, you know, God will forgive me. And you have to forgive me too. And basically, no big deal. When you Now, the reason I bring this up is because that is exactly what Esau did. You may not see it, but what happened? When it came to his birthright, that's what he said. No big deal. And that's why later he couldn't make it right. Because he had despised the very thing that gave him rights in God. And when we're flippant, when we say, we just First John 1, 9 it. What gave us First John 1, 9? It was not cheap. It was not easy. Our sin put him on the cross. It was awful. Sin is not a little thing. It's a terrible thing. And it took something to get it paid for. And if we miss it, thank God we have an advocate with the Father. Thank God we can be forgiven, but we dare not act flippant about it and like, well, I'll just get forgiven. I'll do it again tomorrow if I want to. There are whole religions that work this way. Just expecting that we're going to do all kind of sin, but we'll just come get it taken care of. It's not okay. At all. And if you do it enough, you can disqualify yourself from some things. That's not my thinking. That's scripture. I'm going to show it to you. (laughs) If you've got two more hours. I'd like to. What does this say? Where are you? Keep reading. He said, these men, let's listen to uh, Philip's translation. It says, they have no real reverence for God. Did you hear that? They don't have reverence for God and they abuse his grace as an opportunity for immorality. They said, well, God forgives. We all miss it. What are they doing? They are already planning to do it again. Have they repented? You want to ask God to forgive me? They cried in the altar. No, they have not repented. And this is one of the big things that we got to get a hold of. Repentance means, among other things, it means to perceive afterwards. But then it also means to change. One definition is reversal. It's where some people have gotten and preached about the 180. If there is no change, there was no repentance. Yeah, but they cried. They cried and they sobbed and they so. That means they felt bad. Feeling bad is not repentance. It's condemnation. It's guilt. God doesn't want you in guilt. Well, I went around and felt bad for two weeks. How much more do you want? He didn't want you to feel bad for 30 minutes. 
What he did want you to do is confess it and what? Repent. Change. Change the way you think. Change the way you act. Change the way you talk. Change. And if you haven't changed, you haven't repented. Now we get back to this. I've tried. What? Hands hang down. Feeble. I'm doing the best I can. I'm working on it. What do you mean you're working on it? Well, I used to lie, you know, 10, 12 times a day. But I'm down to two, three tops. I'm working on it. I used to have four women on the side. I'm down to one, just one on the side. I'm working on it. I'm trying, Brother Keith. What does that mean? You are in sin and you refuse to repent. Is what that means. The only other thing is if you really couldn't help it. Then you should be pitied. But that's opposite of the Bible. The Bible says there is no temptation that has happened to you. But such as is common to man. Everybody's going through the same things. But God is faithful. And people have taken that and said, and he won't put more on you than you can stand. That ain't what that said. I really get tired of hearing that. Read the Bible. Keep it in context. God is faithful who will not allow you or suffer you to be tempted above what you're able. Able to what? Able to resist. But will... With the temptation, make a way of escape. All glory to God. What does that mean? There is no such thing as an irresistible temptation. Does not exist. If it was irresistible to you, God would not allow it. That's what that verse said. He won't allow it. That's why we have to repent. Because we could have resisted. If we couldn't help it. Then we shouldn't be required to repent. These guys were teaching. And actually. Perverting. The grace of our Lord. As an excuse. For yielding to the flesh. And just yielding. 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 And just come and we'll get forgiven and go again. We know we're all going to sin. Oh yeah, we sin hundreds of times every day. We're just old sinners. Saved by grace. That's a lie. You can go for days and weeks and months and not sin. Jesus went a whole lifetime. This can't help but sin every day is a bunch of junk. So he says they were taking the grace of our God and turning it in to, you know... Lasciviousness. Verse 5. Here's where he begins to talk about what we were reading about being turned aside or rejected. He said, I'll put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness to the judgment of the great day. 
Now get the flow. What happened to that first generation of Israelites? Were they hard-headed? Were they rebellious? Did they receive correction? The Bible said they tempted him ten ten different major occasions where he tried to correct them and they rebelled and they defied and they were bitter and all they knew how to say is we all going to die out here. And eventually they got to a place where they couldn't find a way to change it. Because they had refused opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to get it changed. And even though he's the one that brought them out and told them he's taking them to the Canaan's land, the same bunch perished. I said, you believe in uh, eternal security, Brother Keith? Can you read? I believe you can be secure as long as you're willing to be. But to say that complete salvation is automatic, no matter what you do, you have a will. I said, you have a will. And even though he's the one that saved them and delivered them, afterwards they were destroyed because they would not repent. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't change. Could they have changed or was it just beyond them? They couldn't help it. They're just born that way. They just hard-headed. No, they could have changed. I said they could have changed. They could have repented. Hmm. Go back with me to Genesis, please. I'm trying not to make this any longer than we need it to be. Phyllis and I have, uh, you see this more and more as time goes on. How vital it is to be able to receive correction and to repent. How important it is. I know in my own life there were, you know, we helped Brother Hagen and we helped other folks for decades. And, uh, you know, I got corrected more than once. And uh, correction is never fun. Never. Oh, I, you know, I enjoy getting corrected. No, you don't. Don't tell us that. No, you don't. And I can look back over, I mean, a dozen times in 25 years that I was tempted to bail. And I was working with good people. Are you listening now? But for whatever reason, I won't go into all of them, I was tempted. And there were some times when certain people tried to correct me and I didn't feel like they had a right to and, and other things. And it seemed to me that obvious they were wrong. And the Lord said, submit. Stay in your place. Not easy. I said, Not easy. There were a couple of times it took me two or three days to get my flesh under my thumb. How many remember 1 Corinthians 9, 27? He said, but I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection. What? Lest by any means, after I have preached to others, I myself should be a... What does that mean? Cast away. Look it up. It has to do with the idea of uh, same kind of thing you see in the King James. Reprobate. Yep. 
It means disqualified. Disqualified. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He never needs to change. But you can disqualify yourself from his perfect will in place for you by refusing to repent and refusing to be corrected. Now, God's merciful even with them. As rebellious as they were, I mean, they defied him. Even though he delivered them out of all the Egyptian plagues, he brought them through the Red Sea. They defied him. He still had mercy. They defied him. They defied him. They defied ten major times. But the tenth time, he said, that's it. That's it. What you've been saying out of your mouth all these days, that's what's going to happen to you. You've said it. You believe it. That's it. It was not his perfect will. It did not please him. But whose fault was it? Could they have repented? Either one of those ten times. Could they have received the correction? They could have. But they wouldn't. He said you're stiff necked people. What does that mean? I ain't got to listen to you. Who are you? Finish reading this and you'll see it in here. Jude. You went to Genesis, didn't you? Hold that. I should have held you here a little bit, shouldn't I? He said, uh, he's talking about people who were destined to good things, but disqualified their own self. And then he said, verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the cities around them giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. Now have I digressed or is this covetousness? This is covetousness. They wanted a different, you know, sex partner every day. And men wanted men. And women wanted women. That's what strange flesh means. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. And... uh They gave themselves to fornication. All they thought about was sex. They fed themselves on it. And they were set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God destroyed, completely destroyed every blade of grass, every dog, every cat, every cow, everything in all those cities And it remains that way in perpetuity. As an example. And notice what he says. Verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh. And they what? Despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. Now this is something that a lot of people have not understood. He gives an example. He says, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of things they know not, but what they know naturally is brute beasts. In those things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. They have gone in the way of what? Cain and ran greedily after the error of what? Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying. Gainsaying means back talking. Back talk of Cory. Did you see this? They speak evil of rulers. 
they despise authority. See, all this goes together, doesn't it? This covetousness, this yielding to the flesh, this participating in every kind of immorality, and despising authority. All goes together. And he gives such an example. He said, Michael did not speak railing accusations against the devil. Now, if you would think there'd be anybody you could trash talk, right? It'd be the devil. But what he's saying is, these people have no concept of authority or structure. They despise dominions. They don't mind who they talk about or how. And he said they'll perish like dumb animals. Now, do you keep hearing the word despise? This is really where the problem comes in. Go to Genesis, and then I think we can finish up in Hebrews. Genesis 25. You may have to pray about what to do with all this when you get home later. Lord, what do I do with all that? Well, I believe the Lord will bring it back to you at the right time, in the right way, and you know where things fit and how they work. Genesis 25, and the latter part of the chapter. 29, 25, 29 of Genesis. Jacob sawed pottage. He's cooking some stew, soup. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. He was really hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, uh, which means red. He became forever identified with a bowl of red stew. Why? Because he sold his whole life and his whole future for a bowl of red stew. Now, if that's not covetous. See, covet, there is no wisdom in sin. Is there? There is no wisdom in sin. Covetousness is willing to sacrifice my whole, my family, my honor, my respect, my ministry. For an afternoon with a stranger. Right? Now see people try to paint a different picture. Well no it wasn't exactly like that. Now brother Keith. It just happened. You're kidding yourself. You knew. You didn't admit it. But you knew. The first wrong flirty thing you said. That led to the next. That led to the next. That led to the next. You knew it. Whether you admit it or not. But let's talk about me. Am I willing. To forfeit. To throw away. Your respect. This church. Worldwide ministry. For what? How much money? Stealing a million dollars? Having some women on the side? Whatever. Now why am I saying that? Because it's a matter. If I did. Then you wind up doing what Esau did. In order to take that. Brief. Brief. Pleasure. And forfeit all of this. You have to despise this. 
you have to go, so what? I want that. Are we talking about covetousness? You have to go, so what? What do I care? I want this. That's exactly what he did. He said, I'm faint. So give me some of that. Jacob said, sell me right now here today your birthright. Now, he shouldn't have done that. He was a a tricker. That's what his name means. Deceiver. He was not right. But I'll tell you one thing he did know. He knew this was important. Now, this is what you have to see in the word. Just everything that somebody did was not right. But why does the Bible and the lineage and the plan of God follow not Esau? Who was the firstborn? Who had the right to it? But follows who? Jacob. Who was a lying, deceiving, double-talking, backstabbing rascal. Wasn't he? Now, you'll see later on, he reaped on that with his father-in-law, didn't he? He reaped some big harvest off of that, didn't he? I mean, the deceiver met the chief deceiver. He thought he was shifty, and he met Laban. Laban got him, what was it, ten times? With the fine print in the contract. He just kept getting caught. But in spite of all that, why would Jacob think of this? Why not just get some money? Why not get some good hunting equipment? Why not, you know, get a little piece of land or something? No, what does he want? He wants the spiritual rights. For all his faults, he didn't know what was important. And what does Esau say? Esau says, look, I'm about to die. And what profit is this birthright going to do me? Jacob said, swear to me right now. And he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau the bread and the pottage of lentils, and he did eat and he drank and he rose up and went his way. Thus Esau did what? That's the deal. He did what? He despised, which means he failed to respect it. He failed to esteem it. He failed to value it. He said, whatever. Skip over to 27. 27, I won't read the whole story, you know how it came time toward the end of their father's life. He told uh, the firstborn, Esau, to go get him some food and prepare it and come in. It's time for him to bless him and pronounce his birthright over him, that he be the leader of the tribe and the spiritual leader and really the successor down through the lineage of the Christ. And he despised all that. And (laughs) that tricky Jacob, him and his mom, 
hatched this plan to get some of Esau's clothes and put some hairy skin on his forearms and try to talk like Esau. And he went in there and he said, well, you're here so quick. He said, yeah. He says, is it really you? He said, yeah, it's me, Esau. And his father pronounced the blessing and the birthright that he had bought with a bowl of stew sometime before over him. And he believed it. His father meant it. And he took it and he said, I got it. I got it. And he left. And he's totally convinced. He's got the birthright. He's got the blessing. Esau came in later. And uh, 34. He found out that his brother had already been in there and got it. And he, when he heard the words of his father, he cried with a great an exceeding bitter cry. And he said to his father, well, bless me, me too, my father. And he said, your brother has come in here with trickery and subtlety and took away your blessing. Now, let's just stop right here. These things are not just empty words. A real prayer of faith. A real laying on of hands. People do it a lot of times and there's nothing to it. But when it really is right... And the real word of prophecy. And the real pronouncement of blessing. It's not just words in the air. Notice he said. I did it. I can't change it. Why couldn't you change it? Why couldn't you just say. No he tricked me and so X all that. Because it's real. And it was done. Spiritual things are more real than people think they are. He said, your brother came in here and got it. And he said, is he not rightly named Jacob Supplanter? He has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and now he got the blessing too. He said, don't you have a reserve, a blessing for me, please? Just one. Can't you bless me too? And Isaac said, behold, I have made him your Lord. And all his brothers I give him for servants. And the corn and wine I've sustained him. And what can I do for you? Esau said to his father, don't you just have even one blessing? Can't you bless me? And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. Can you see? This is what the New Testament was talking about. He tried to change it and he couldn't. Because he had despised it one too many times. Can you see this? Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Go to Hebrews 6. I think I can close with this. Now, in talking about this, does this mean that God would not forgive him? Hmm? No, it did not. And this is where people get confused. You can be forgiven, but disqualified. But that only happens if you repeatedly Refuse to repent and refuse to be corrected and harden yourself. Do we have to do that? That's a little weak. Do you have to harden yourself and refuse to be corrected? Or can you? Repent. Hebrews 6.6 talks about what a lot of people are confused about. Some people call it the unpardonable sin, but really that terminology is not accurate. He said in Hebrews 6, 
1. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again, what's that next word? The foundation of what? Man, that's the foundation. How many know that's how you got in this thing? How'd you get born again? Hmm? Didn't you have to repent? You got to repent. Repentance. What if you could not be convinced that you had sinned? Could you get saved? I've talked to people like that. Well, I think I'm just as good as you or any of these preachers and people around here. And you try to tell them, well, no, no. Everybody needs Jesus. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't think I need it. Can they be saved? They refuse to repent. No. And he said, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, doctrine of baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, and this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were what? Once enlightened, that's to your need of Jesus, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, that's getting born again, that's receiving Jesus. And were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, that's being filled with the Spirit. And have tasted the good word of God. Now that means you're not just three days old in the Lord. You have fed on the milk of the word and you've grown in the word. And the powers of the world to come. That's the gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, working of miracles. If you have had all this. So really a baby Christian couldn't do this. But if you know this and have this, if they fall away, in other words, they leave the Lord and go away from him, it is, you have to go back to verse 4, it is impossible to what? To what? To renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame, or in other words, they despise what they formerly said they valued to save them. Now they're going, ah, all that church stuff, all that Jesus stuff. I don't know what I was thinking. Despising it like Esau despised his birthright. Now did it say God wouldn't forgive them? No. What did it say? Said you could not get them to repent. And that's when the disqualifying stuff happens. That's when things where people miss things that they were supposed to have and do and it's not fixed. Not somebody that's wanting to get things right and wanting to be right with God and willing to repent and willing to do anything to please God. That person is not missing the plan of God. It's the person who snubs their nose. Who defies authority. Who refuses correction. And won't repent. You do that repeatedly. And you'll get to a place where like he saw. He cried. He begged his daddy. He tried everything he knew how. And couldn't be fixed. Stand on your feet please. Father I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your goodness and grace. I know this has been sobering tonight. I've done the best I knew with it. 
We reverence your word. You are right. Your word is right. Everything you say and do is right. If it differs from us, then you're right. And we're wrong. You are a gracious and merciful God. But we see it's possible to defy you enough and to disqualify ourselves from something. We don't want that to happen. Not now and not tomorrow. Let me lead you in a prayer. Everybody say this out loud. Father God. I reverence you. Nothing is more important. Than you. To me. Your word. Your people. Your church. Your kingdom. Your plan. Your ways. Nothing is more important to me than this. Forgive me forever despising any of your things or your people. And I pray for repentance concerning any of these things. I am willing to be taught to be re- corrected to be reproved I know you'd do it because you love me you'd give it to me because you care about me and for my certain good to partake of your holiness to be like you Christ like God like so I asked for it And I say, I am teachable. By faith, I say, I am correctable. I will repent. In Jesus' name. Oh, praise you, Lord. This ministry has been brought to you today, free of charge, by the partners of More Life Ministries and Faith Life Church. If you would like to help send this word to others at no charge, you can become a word sender today. For more information, visit our website at morelife.org.